Folks, this is the morning brushback. It is Friday, 9-11. Bobby, how are you, sir? I am much more lively than you are, Dan. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, it's been, a long, a, it's been a long morning for you. It's been a long week, yeah. So yesterday I went home uh, to spend some time with my folks. Had like a working holiday, sort of. Um, you know, had lunch with them, did a bunch of work, had dinner with them. Did a little work, came home, that kind of thing. And while I was away, DC apparently flooded. And it was like monsoon. It's been monsoon season for the past week anyway. But there's like crazy amounts of water in the streets. And here's the caveat, which this actually would have turned out well in my favor. Uh, however, it did not come to fruition. So I have a vehicle that I no longer need. Like I, I live in the city. I don't need a car. I've been trying to get rid of it, but, I, but it's a lease. And when I moved to DC, it was only like nine months old. So you just like can't get out of your lease that quickly without having to like, basically here's like five grand to take my car because it's depreciated faster than I've paid it off essentially. So it's easy to get out of your lease, like two years in whatever you can sell to a dealership, just be done with it. It's great, whatever. But in my, my situation, I had to keep it longer. So I've been keeping this car that I've been paying for that. I don't ever, like I saw it for the first time last week. And then since I kind of need it for the next two months, I got parking underneath my building and I moved it into the underground parking garage literally yesterday morning. And then I go home and then it's flooding. And I like the flooding was like substantial here in DC. And so I'm just picturing, okay, literally the day I moved my car underground, water is going to be pouring down and just <laughs> filling up this underground garage and I'm going to come back to a completely submerged car. Uh, which if you have like full insurance, like comprehensive insurance, the car is just going to be totaled and you're going to get like a new car or it's going to be just done. If you don't, then it's a very bad situation. But since the lease, like I, it's like fully covered, like it has to be. So I was kind of like, Hey, this was a weird coincidence, but maybe my car's underwater right now. And that's not a terrible thing. So maybe this is an act of God and a, you know, very random coincidence. If it is, I'm okay with that. There's nothing about, like my car is literally has not one thing in it. I'd lose like maybe one pen. Um, but I came back today. My car was fine. There was no water. So it's very sad. My, very sad. My condolences too. I know. But so here we are. Um, so for those of you listening, thanks for being here. Apologies for Tuesday. Uh, just had like a last minute um, snafu and just like wasn't going to happen. So here we are. Robert, what's on the docket today? Well, I want to talk player development today because I've been, I've been going at it, not on Twitter as much, but amongst uh, some other coaches, like everybody's preaching like development, right? Player development, player development. You go to the, all these travel programs. You've got these young, you know, coaches doing one-on-one lessons. Like it's all about quote unquote development. And as someone who's in the travel world, yeah, development's great, but how are we developing players? Like, what does that even mean? So my guess, my overarching question is, what does player development even mean at the, at the youth level? Like, is it, uh, is it young players? Is it young players just playing the game of baseball? Is, are you teaching them individual skills? I mean, I just want to – let's start off with, like, young kids. And this, this is a little bit – personal for me because I was like thinking about like okay if this was my like I'm about to have a kid a son 
how am I going to teach this kid baseball? Am I going to do like, am I going to hit him ground balls? Or do I want him to play more baseball? So Dan, I guess first question is. First of all, I, kn- I know what you're going to do. You're going to drop him off in a random parking lot in a random area of town and be like, play baseball. I'll be back in three hours. One day it'll be like a beautiful field. One day it'll be a parking lot full of broken glass. It'll just be like this highly variable thing. And your son will be a number one draft pick at the age I, of 15, having graduated from high school early and being a community leader because he's seen so much. <laughs> and and knowing, the, knowing his way around the city because I'm going to drop him off with no phone. <laughs> Figure it out. Exactly. But you, want de- you want development. This is the ultimate development. Find your way home. On the days that the city floods, you'll just push him out the door in a boat and say, wherever the boat stops, play baseball for three hours, then paddle home. If it's, you- if it's too dry to paddle home, carry the boat home. I have been, I have been joking that I, uh, like he's definitely going to play tennis just because I've been watching a lot of U.S. Open this year or this week, and I'm like, I'm like, tennis is the key. You don't even need to win the tournament. You just have to be in the tournament to make some money. What a life. You have to be good at it. You just have to be good enough. None Individual that, none sport. Of that, none of that. No literally teammates. none of that makes sense. Yeah, no teammates. Like, what? You just, just go out there, serve and volley. Serve and volley. Anyways. No, that, no, that made sense. Okay, so what's your first question? What's your first question? My question, my question is for younger guys: what What's more beneficial, individual skills or actually learning the game of baseball? Let's say 12, 12 years old and under. Well, you can't separate them, right? I mean, you, you have to. You, well, you can't separate them. You can't learn the game of baseball without developing skills. I mean, if you're a Sandlot player from 1980, or even we kind of kind of grew up in like the tail end of the Sandlot generation, I guess. You can't, you can't learn baseball and not have some skills. And you just, they just get honed over time. No, you can't. Like, if you're swinging a bat, like, you have skills. I mean, I mean, I think to your earlier kind of point is that a lot of these terms in baseball are just very muddy and broad and general and vague. Like player development is very vague. Like, what does it even mean? I don't know what it means. It, it doesn't. It know. mean it means literally. It means nothing, and it means everything. I mean, it's a catch-all. Same with skill acquisition, which is like the dumbest thing to put in your Twitter bio. Oh, you've acquired a skill. Like I acquired skills when I was an infant. I learned how to stick food in my face. I learned how to walk. I learned how to jump at some point. My nephew is obsessed with learning how to jump he doesn't know how to do it yet he goes jump 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 and then he like steps off like a curb (laughs) like that wasn't a jump sorry (laughs) you'll get there one day sport like like skill acquisition is just a catch-all and it's because that one is a you know there's a lot of people who are learning more about how people acquire skills and applying that to baseball which is great but it's still just a big catch-all player development's a big catch-all it's like if you meet a person in a major league organization that works in player development, do you know what they do? You don't. You don't even know what their background is. I mean, really, no, no there's, idea. There's people in player development that have played in the majors. There's people in player development that have not played baseball. It and it, either one's fine. Depends on what their role is, but it's just a term that doesn't necessarily have a strong meaning anymore. And at a youth level, it's even less. So I'm. Are we. You, we do a lot more on the team side of like the baseball IQ side than we do with the, like, for instance, taking ground balls and teaching like footwork for ground balls. And 
I bring this up because we have got like I've got guys in the high school program like that are high school players that don't understand baseball and it's mind-boggling to me that like they've they haven't been with us very long or they come from new programs or other programs or they come from their dad coach team or park team or whatever and the the little the, the little that they know about baseball is is absolutely baffling for example okay Tuesday practice. This is what sparked. This is what sparked my whole thought process on this. Tuesday practice. We're doing a basic infield outfield, hitting the hitting by you know hitting ground ball. Hit with, you know one one and cover two two and cover. You know backhand slow roller whatever. So once after we do infield outfield, which goes relatively smoothly because the kids have done it before, we just jump into basic situations. Okay and. Balls hit to the outfield, the amount like it's very evident that guys don't watch enough baseball and that they don't understand the game. When balls go to the outfield, it's like four guys in the infield literally running around, not understanding where they're supposed to go, where they're supposed to be, like where the ball is supposed to go. So we do a lot, you know, hit the ball in the gap. Double cuts, and we've talked about this before, double cuts aren't really a thing, right? Like, we don't, there's not two throws. There's, or there's two throws. There's not three throws. You know, yeah. the backup guy. Mm-hmm. But it's like you hit a ball to the left center gap, and the shortstop instinctively goes out. And then you've got the third baseman who kind of, like, starts drifting to the outfield because he doesn't know what he's supposed to be doing. And you've got the second baseman kind of, like, standing at his position because the ball – isn't on his side of the field. And then I've got the first baseman, basically where he would be on a cut from the center fielder between second base and the pitcher's mound. And I, I yell freeze, you know, I yell, you know, freeze, whatever, everyone stop. And I go kind of go around the infield. I'm like, where are you supposed to be? And they all kind of give me this blank stare. Okay. So I'm like, this can't happen. I don't understand, you know, when the ball's hit, you need to be thinking. There needs to be some kind of thought process here. Like, hey, if the ball's hit to me with a guy on first, like, I'm going to turn a double play. Like, that should be instinctive, right? Mm-hmm. When the ball's not hit to you, you still have some responsibility. So back to the player development side. These kids have always been taught, you know, ground, like, right, left, field, ground ball, throw, like, power position, pitching, whatever, hitting stance. None of them have been taught baseball at all. So what is more important, do you feel like? And I feel like the baseball portion of it is infinitely more important than the skill portion because you're going to develop the skills the more you play. But the baseball IQ side, like you don't develop baseball IQ hitting in the batting cage. You don't develop baseball IQ just taking ground balls at a position with no situational stuff. And it's becoming more and more evident, like the, in the last couple of years, and I'm seeing at the high school level, like these kids have no idea, and it's not their fault. It's not, you know, we're not screaming and yelling at them like, "Hey, you should know this." It's more like I've taken a step back, thinking, "What, like, what are we developing with six, seventh, and eight, six, seven, and eight year old kids? Like they just don't play baseball. Like the, these kids are being quote unquote developed because they yeah. go to their one on one coaches." Right, like the guys that do the the private lessons, like oh, they're you know player development in a Twitter bio, player development. I do one on one lessons. You're not developing anybody. You're well, just practicing 
a specific skill. And baseball is so much more than that. So is this a yelling at clouds, like old man yelling at clouds kind of day? Or Yeah, yes. I feel like I want to just rant about people not knowing what the hell is how to teach baseball. Well, I mean, I think the question is when I, – I, I still think you learn it heavily playing backyard baseball. Like Sandlot, the Sandlot wasn't a thing when I was a kid. Like, well, there's no place we would all meet. But, like, you learn a lot in backyard baseball, and you learn a lot by watching baseball. Like, we've talked about this, and uh, I don't think that can be replaced because you just don't get you don't get the time doing it. And then there's a lot of dads coaching, and there's, that's just, like, the way the culture is at, you know, the young levels. And it's hard to know the uh, – and the thing is, I mean, even for, like, well-meaning parents who are coaches – there's just like there's just like a lot of stuff that they they won't get to cover or they won't know to cover and it's just like it's just different I think than it was and there's so many more teams right so like the coaching is spread out so I don't know what the percentage would be where of how many people who played are are youth coaches like I don't know what do you think it's one in six Ugh, I don't know maybe 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 less maybe more maybe. it's a that's a guess I don't know but maybe more I would say there's I'd say there's much there's more coaches that didn't play all the way through varsity baseball than are than there are coaches. So, well, well if you could just like re rework society, then like, what do you think would be the solution to this problem, or what's an actionable what's an actionable solution for parents? Because for someone who's listening, they're like, "You're right, Bobby. Like, I can see the kids like kind of don't know where to go. They don't have the instincts. Well, like, I've got I've got time. What do I do with my child to 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 rectify this?" I think it's. I think it would be incredibly difficult in a one-on-one setting or a two-on-one setting to develop those like that knowledge of baseball that these kids, I believe, are currently not getting. I feel like the. I feel like the actionable thing to do is to really put them in positions like and play the game. Like, let's play. Let's actually play the game, whether it's wiffle ball, whether it's the, you know, fungo, a coach with a fungo doing situations like to actually get the kids thinking about baseball. Cause they really don't like, they do not think about the game, how what's instinctive for myself and you and, and people that have like guys that know baseball that play baseball for a long time where I think, okay, like they should know this. Like, you know, guy on first base, double play depth. Like, how do we guys not know this? They've never really been taught that. They Like, kids have just not been taught, like, hey, double play depth with a guy on first base. You know, if you're pitching, you communicate with the shortstop or the second baseman who's covering on a double play. Like, that was, that was another thing on Tuesday where we had a pitcher out there, and every single time we actually – we did have base runners. So, every single time someone got on first, I'm yelling, who you working with? And the kid pitching is – like that he's never heard that he's never heard that phrase who you working with mm-hmm. and it's just mind-boggling to me yeah so i think the first actionable thing is throw the, the kids need to be on the field you know sandlot baseball for as much as may might not be around anymore you can still kind of incorporate that into your practice you know if you've got a team and most of these teams have 12 13 14 players on it throw a team out on a field throw some base runners out there and actually let them work with the game, like see the game happen in real time in front of them. Cause you're just not getting that. Like there's the, that we talked about it before the guys the kids in the Dominican for as much as they, you know, their skills, the Dominican shortstop probably takes 
10 times the amount of ground balls that an American shortstop takes. And, you know, by the time he's 10 years old, 12 years old, he's also probably playing 10 times the amount of actual baseball. Like he's got, he's experienced things. He's experienced first and third situations and he's experienced, you know, balls in the gap and he's got to go out there and do it. Whereas like we're yelling at kids on the player development side, on the youth side, I'm trying to teach baseball and I'm yelling at kids. And then I take a step back and realize like they've probably never seen this happened before and I'm expecting him to do it in real time at full speed. Well, as a, I mean, I think one of the things is, I mean, even if you're just like right out of the minor leagues and you're going to now coach a youth team, how do you suddenly give kids those skills? That's a hard, that's not an easy question. I mean, I remember one of the things that, and I will be the first to admit that I was a much better instructor slash am a much better instructor. I, I, I just prefer smaller groups or one-on-ones at like team practices because my little golden skill is not making these incredibly complex, like you're station A, you're going to do this and then we're going to go here and then we're going to go here. This is going to perfectly optimize time. Like good coaches are really special people the way they're very organized and uh, can run like really efficient practices. I don't feel like that's my magical skill. Um, but a lot of things that I, I felt like, you know, for example, say you want kids to get base running instincts, which is something that they definitely lack. It's hard to get that in game situations because they're not like put in positions where they might have to go first or third. It's, it's like the extra, I'm going to score, I'm going to tag, or I'm going to go first or third. Those are like the base running instinct kind of plays, right? There's others for sure. Also like reading fly balls, but you kind of have to, if you, at, if you let kids play, they don't put themselves in situations to have to like do that all that often. Right. Like if you have a, just simulated games, how many first, the thirds are going to come up in that situation. So for us, like, and this isn't like groundbreaking by any means, we would, I would either put a coach in the outfield or I'd be in the outfield and I'm going to hose these kids at third base or, <laughs> you know, be like, Hey, you have to steal within four pitches and I'm catching and I'm going to like throw a missile or our catchers are going to, throw bazookas and get them. Uh, so it just puts them in a position where they like need to risk being out or not. Whereas if you just let them play, they'll do what they've always done, right? Like they're not going to just automatically go when they don't feel like they're safe. So it's like, Hey, w watch me. Like we're going to hit fly balls to our coach in right field. You're going to be on second base. You're going to tag and go to third. Watch his first couple throws read how deep he is and you have to go within a couple or whatever it is. Right. It's, uh, you know, when you can control a little bit better, obviously it's way easier to hit a ball to the right side and make kids go first, a third, put someone with a strong arm and right field where they can consistently make throws. Again, I think the coach is good for that. And just to be like, Hey, you got to read this. So if it's in front of you more towards center field, you can see the ball a little bit, right? If it's behind you, how hard is it hit? Right. If it's hit over your head as a runner on first, like over the second baseman's head, it's going to be kind of a line drive to the right fielder, right? So we're kind of like helping them pick out which balls off the bat they think they can probably get to third on, right? Um, so I don't know. We would do stuff like that, but we, we didn't have time for that all the time either because you just don't have that many practices. That's the other challenge. Like I think really the, at the end of the day, you can only get, what, two two-hour practices a week? Yeah. How much do you guys right. practice? A couple hours? And it's hard to say, all right, we're going to do – this, all this other stuff. Cause it takes time and it takes in, you know, if you want kids to build instincts, they got to go one at a time in like in a game situation, right? You just can't, 
have stations constantly. That's not like a game instinct kind of thing. So now they're all lined up. Everyone's on the field. You have guys running on first base, and now you're hitting balls the right side, and they're going first or third, and they got to reset, and the next guy's got to get on. I mean, it just takes a lot of time. It takes like a solid hour out of your practice. And now one out of your four hours per the week, you did that, and now maybe infielders didn't get as many ground balls as they need, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just challenging. Like I, don't, I just think if you have to leave kids into uh, – like the kids have to just take their extra time and fill it with baseball. I think that's still, I think that's still like the, would you agree? That's probably the X factor. Yeah. I think play, yeah, playing it, just the amount of time spent playing the game is just not like it's, it's not just baseball. I think it's evident in a lot of, in a lot of sports. I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've been the youth basketball games over the, you know, watching kids like it's evident in basketball. It's evident in football. It's evident in all these sports that they're just not like kids. Time is stretched so thin, like they're in activities but they're not immersed in those activities. So it's, it's very difficult to pick up the nuances of all these sports and to perform them at a high level against someone who's doing that nonstop. And we, you know, we consistently reference kids from the Dominican or Puerto Rico that like, that's their sole focus, right? They're just, they develop so young because there's, it's all they do. I mean, I lived in the Czech Republic to play baseball, and those kids that only play soccer or hockey, I mean, they're like fa- they're so fast tracked because all that time that I let's say American kids are doing like going to basketball practice, then they've got guitar lessons, then they've got baseball practice. All that time is singularly focused, and they're developing at such a high, like a rapid rate. They're picking up all the nuances of their sport or their skill, whatever they're doing and they're doing it at a young age and then they just rapidly expound on that where it's, yeah, it's like we continually teach, you know, we preach development, baseball, you know, player development, but then, you know, first week of November, we're teaching base running. Second week of November, we got to teach base running again. Third week, we got to teach base running again. You know, you constantly have to harp on things that we can't ever build kind of, you said uh, skill acquisition earlier. We can't, we can't, you know, talent stack and you know <laughs> put stack these skills together because we consistently have to you know repeat our you know repeat all the stuff and it's not that the kids aren't listening or paying attention they mm-hmm. just need it more they need it a lot more than they're getting and they're just not getting enough of the playing aspect well here's the question does this actually like come back to haunt them I mean, like, is it, are kids, like, not getting to play in college that throw pretty hard? Like, if you're 84, 86 as a, as a pitcher, as a high school junior, are you not getting to play college baseball because you don't have good baseball instincts? Probably not. You're probably still getting a chance. I mean, if you're a shortstop and you're like, like – I'm, I'm not sure – does it weed kids out? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know that it's really weeding them out. And at some point, they really get, like, thrown in the fire probably. But – at some point, it seems to get ironed out, right? Like, obviously, I don't think all ball players grow up the way that they used to, maybe. But it's not like we have like guys in, in in the major leagues or guys in college who are don't know where to go, right? So at some point, it seems like it gets fixed. Am I wrong? No, I, th- I think you're right. I think that in the broader aspect, there's just less of those guys that like like you said, like you get to college and there's less guys on the team that 
that have an opportunity to maybe advance past college, not because they're not talented enough, but they've like, they just, they're so far behind baseball wise. Like at some point, the guys that get on the field are the ones that know baseball and they're not being pushed from the guys that are on the bench to, to be on the field. Not, not cause the guy on the bench isn't talented enough. It's cause he just can't be on, like can't trust mm-hmm. him on the field. So I think, I just think there's, I think the pool, like the, there's just less, and then it's more evident. I mean, college level is a different story, but at but, the youth level. Question. Yeah. Are the players that are good enough to play in college the ones who don't know where to go? I can't see. I can't imagine that scenario you just mentioned. And correct me if I interpret it wrong, where there's like a kid who like could has the skills to play in college who's getting benched because he doesn't know what to do on the field. I, I, don't, I don't see that scenario really happening. No. Because I've no, had kids like right. that on my team. And and. A couple of years ago, we had a kid. I mean, there's always you always have like you know there's a bell curve of talent on a team, and sometimes the tail end were like maybe they came from a much less competitive organization or wherever they just didn't get as much instruction or play as much, and they're just below the baseball acumen of other players, and it sticks out right. And there's sometimes where you're just like, dude, you can't misjudge another fly ball, or you can't like you can't knock over first base another time. Like I got to sit you like this. We need this game. Right. But I've never seen that with like a, you know, here and there they'll make a mental error, but I don't see that regularly with like the best players. Not usually with the best players. And I think it's more evident. And there's guys that like have the, have that skill at the younger level, but they just, they don't, have any baseball sense whatsoever and all of a sudden their skill starts to suffer because they can't it's hard to use the skill if you can't get on the field and i'm more talking on a when i say youth level let's say 16 and under you know i got you know you have kids that are that might be super talented you know at 14 years old in eighth grade and Mm -hmm. you just can't trust them you can't they can't progress with their talent because they don't know, like, they just don't know the game. You know, you put them out there and they're kind of clueless on what's supposed to happen. And maybe it's just an engagement, like, on their aspect. Like, they're not engaging in the game enough. But I did, like, I've coached a bunch of 14 new games this year. And we've got a bunch of kids like that. They're super talented. And they just, like, it just doesn't translate. Not because they're not hitting the ball hard or they don't have a good arm. They just, like, when the ball's hit, it's like a, chicken with their head cut off, you know, out there and having multiple guys in the field like that is, is tough to watch. Not only is it tough to watch, it's, it's like, <laughs> it's absolute chaos. It's absolute chaos. When you've got multiple guys in the field that yeah. are in the wrong positions. So let's talk then. Obviously you have to have requisite skills. Like this is one of those, this is like almost like the velo versus command debate, which makes me want to just like punch myself in the face. (laughs) Uh, Where it's kind of like you, you have to get both right. Like if you just spend all your time playing in the sandlot and and not work on individual skills, I mean, it's super challenging. Um, And this happened with like, I just went to a a team practice here locally uh, that I'm going to be kind of like volunteering with them. And you know, like in a team practice, you're trying to get a lot accomplished with a lot of bodies and it's hard to like affect anyone's pitching mechanics. Like, how do you teach a kid a new changeup or a new curveball or like make a, a valuable adjustment to their swing in a team practice? It's super hard. Like we both know that. So obviously there's 
there's a need for both. And back in the day, it seems like you just figured it out, right? Like for me as a pitcher, I learned pitching mechanics from, I, I remember one time we all met at our coach's house and we like went over the steps of the windup in his living room. That's all I really remember. Cause I don't have that many, like, I don't have a lot of strong childhood memories, but I know I got instruction, but it was always a team practice for the most part. And I had good coaches that really cared. Um, but I think I otherwise just like practiced a lot in my backyard and kind of figured it out and my body. And I think that's just really lucky because if you tell 10 athletic kids, just like go practice your pitching a bunch, some figure out how to throw fuel and most are just kind of like mediocre. So, uh, and we've got a lot of good questions uh, in YouTube today. So I appreciate everyone who's watching. And so, well, let's mention we're here. So uh, Steve from YouTube mentions that they go to three and a quarter hour twice a week practices and they do their last hour scrimmaging four pitchers throw and he said the kids really like it that's a long competitive practice and I think that that is a really good way to do it where every time they get to compete and you know you you build you get your reps in you get your skill work and then you play some actual baseball at the end is that kind of how you structure yours yeah so it's uh, it's funny that he says that because so the last 14U game, we had two of our 14U teams playing a scrimmage game. So let's call them, you know, team one and team two. Well, game one as in the doubleheader, it was normal team one versus normal team two. And then the coaches for the second game, they picked two starting pitchers. And then they said, okay, draft your own team. Kind of like Sandlot pick up baseball. And talking to the coach afterwards, funny, you know, funny enough, he's like, this is the most – like talkative, the most energetic game that we've had all year. He goes, and that, and it was just because, you know, they were, they got to pick who was on each other's team. They mm-hmm. were, you know, talking back and forth with each other. Like it was, it was kind of like a throwback, right? Of, That's why baseball is fun as a kid. That's why we would go do it outside. Right. But it, it's like, they don't games. know that, yeah. right? Yeah, like super these fun. kids, they didn't know that until like the coach actually had to structure it that way and said, okay, like draft your teams and go play. And it's like, it was just unbelievable. The difference in, and did we just like, how do you do that? How do you replicate that? You just let them do that all the time. I would love for them to do that all the time. Honestly, if there was space and we live in a, I live in a, a crappy weather city, you know, nine months out of the year. So it's not like we can be outside just, all just the time. The worst. Yeah. Has it snowed there recently? It's actually raining right now. Uh, it'll snow soon, but we, you know, I, he can't do that inside all the time because you can't, there's just not baseball fields domed in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when they're outside like that and you get the chance to do that, like you can just see how competitive, like it's like, it's in there. It's not like the kids don't can't do it or they don't want to do it. They just haven't done it. They don't know, like they don't know that they can do it. They don't know yeah. that it's a thing they can do. Pickup games are really fun. I miss them. Um, so we had a bunch of a couple of different people asking um, a couple of kids that are listening, asking about how to develop pitching velocity. So let's talk a little bit about, the skills that you do think are valuable. So let's have you talk about the pitching or the hitting side and I'll chat a little bit about the, the pitching side, because say you have all these great team practices, wonderful. What should kids do on their own to like have the bat speed and have the swing quality that they really need? So, so I think that one of the like undervalued skills is at, is being able to actually like to barrel the ball, like, that they the should hit. acquire. Should they acquire these skills, Bobby? They should acquire the hit okay. tool, right? Like there's guys with 
you know, everyone wants to work on their mechanics, hitting coach one-on-one, but just going out and actually hitting moving a moving baseball or a moving wiffle ball consistently, like do it over and over, like to develop that hit tool. There's plenty of kids that I have that don't have the best mechanics, but they can hit. Like they're just pure hitters. Mm-hmm. They can barrel the ball. And the only thing I can attribute I can attribute that to is that they hit a lot. Like they go to the kid, they go to the park with their dad. They go hit with their with their buddies. You know, lob league, tennis ball, whatever. So I think, from a personal standpoint, if I was a young player, tell me I wanted to be good at hitting. Let's frame it this way: Tell me, like you're gonna have a kid soon. So yeah. tell me, tell me what you would do. Like your son is eight or nine or ten years old. Tell me what you guys would do on a given week. Like you go in the I'm, backyard. What would you do? Throw him bottle caps. Throw him grain to right. Like, t- tell me. Tell me what you do with him. I'm throwing him wiffle balls hundreds and hundreds of pitches wiffle balls like just let them hit and the nice thing i what i liked about hitting wiffle balls when i was younger is that obviously they don't go very far right but you have to put like you you're trying to hit it far it's not like you're not trying to hit it far so you you develop bat speed you develop some power right because you're trying to hit that thing as far as you possibly can and it's only going to go so far even now like as a grown adult like that ball's only going so far but as a younger player you know you, you're going to swing harder. Like you're going to develop bat speed by doing it by actually, you know, it's not taking a heavy bat and doing different drills. It's okay. Like let's try and hit. So if, if I have my own kid, when I do have my own kid and he, if he does like baseball, like we're going to be out in the yard hitting wiffle balls and try, you know, I'm not going to say too much. I don't, I'm sure I'm going to yell at him until he's hates me, but I'm going to throw them wiffle balls like that. That seems be, optional. You could just not do that, you know, if I you don't could, want, you know, could. you could not do that. But what fun but, is having the kid if you can't yell at him? Well, wiffle balls are nice because they're always unpredictable. And I think they just suck you in attention wise because they always flutter and move a little bit. Like, even if you feel like you're right on it, it just like takes a weird turn and you miss hit it. Right. And, and you learn to like pull your hands in the last minute. You learn to just like really keep your focus and your eyes on like eye on the, like eye on the ball quote unquote even though it's you know obviously you can't track it all the way to your bat but little stuff like that i mean i think it really is underrated and it sounds like oh great advice bobby you're gonna throw your kid wiffle balls but really we all grew up on hitting wiffle balls and they are hard to hit and how many times were you like you know your buddy throws one hard and just like coming in just suddenly veers in next to you you're just like whoa and you just whip it foul pull it over the house but like oh, yeah. those are all it's like really good hand-eye coordination especially if it's like a it doesn't have to be competitive but when wiffle ball gets competitive of course i would play baseball with a tennis ball in my backyard a lot i, I love playing stick stick ball take a rag or we like cut up a sock or just ball up a sock and tape right. it really tight and you play with a broomstick i mean the dominicans would throw bottle hit bottle caps hit grains of rice hit like popcorn kernels i mean all those things are just there's such fun good i would go i would go hit walnuts we had a walnut tree behind my house i'd go hit the, all the walnuts after they like sit in the green <laughs> the big green thing comes off them yeah like like a normal walnut size i was just tossing them up and hitting them all the time i don't know it's weird it, it's funny because what's old is what's old is new right because like they don't do, that's that was a fat that was what we did mm-hmm. when we were younger kids don't do that anymore like they take hitting lessons they go hit off the tee for 10 minutes all right old man all right old man yelling at the clouds we get i'm it, the but- guy that I, but i'm the guy that gives as the guy that gives lessons mm-hmm. like i can't bring a kid in for an hour lesson and literally throw him wiffle balls the whole time parents would be like what a, what the hell are we paying for 
And yeah. honestly, like that's that is the best way to get better at hitting. Not just wiffle balls, just hitting. Like mm-hmm. throw and hit moving balls. I bought a blitz ball. You know what blitz ball is? That lime green wiffle ball. It's kind of. I think got, I, I think I do. I think it's hard to find a regular wiffle like a wiffle brand one. I think the blitz balls yeah. are more popular and they probably sell better. That's probably why. I don't, think, like, I don't think toy stores want to sell a $2 plastic ball anymore. They're like, uh, where's the profit in this? They actually do. I saw it, and I actually saw a wiffle ball in the dollar store the other day. Um, dollar, exactly. But the Blitz ball has got, like, this blue bat and a lime green ball. And if you throw this thing, just it's it doesn't have any holes in it. So the wind, I mean, it takes it all over the place. But, like, it's fun. We were playing it this winter. We were playing at the coaches. You know, we were in the cage throwing it, trying to strike each other out. And – same thing, hand-eye coordination. You know, that ball's moving all over the place. And we're trying to hit it, and it's we're trying to make it, you know, curve and spin. I mean, you learn so much by doing, and I just uh, and kids just don't do it enough. And I've been on my soapbox for 37 minutes now, but <laughs> they just don't do it enough. And, he, it's, and I get where coaches are coming from. Like, yeah, you can't, you can't have people paying to play baseball, bring them in and have them play wiffle ball for two hours. Cause that's not like, that doesn't feel like value when it in, in hindsight or in retrospect, it might be the best value. Like that might be the, what they get the most out of is playing. Yeah. Well, and it's funny that you mentioned that because um, in the area, like I'm not planning on being a head coach or anything like that. Um, And I actually had a softball clinic, a throwing clinic on Tuesday. I have another softball clinic tomorrow. Um, So like I'm doing instruction still but what i'm actually very excited about is volunteering to teach kids pitching in like small groups um there's a local organization that i'm gonna start doing that at and it feels and i think it's for it's for exactly that reason number one when i like show up i don't like owe anyone my time like i don't have to feel like i have to maximize these last three minutes for the exact reason that you said where i feel like we could sit here and talk baseball for 15 minutes of our hour if we wanted to because it's it's valuable but it's not something that people sometimes want to be paying for when you're they're right. paying a dollar 50 a minute or more you know what i mean um and you could just like I, I think there's a lot of like you said there's value in that where we can just like veer off topic and be like hey let's let's like do you guys just want to like play like do something just like throw more or just it doesn't have to be as structured and i think you're right that in, in the instruction world it becomes because you feel that pressure as an instructor. Like we charged a hundred dollars an hour in Bloomington, Illinois. Right. Um, I charge more than that now for private lessons here in the DC area. Uh, and there's a certain like pressure that comes with that. Like you want to like feel like you gave value. And I think people want mechanics, right. They want to do stuff that's going to inc- see a tangible measurable benefit. I think a lot of parents also realize that you getting to know their kid and spending four or five minutes asking them about their day and about their week and about their, how they've been playing and like getting to know them as people is still valuable. Like that's worth paying for quote unquote. But, um, but yeah, there is definitely a pressure as an instructor to give value packed in the whole time, which doesn't feel like play. Yeah. So um, let's chat about pitching a little bit. So for those of you who asked about pitching velocity, especially if you're young. So I know uh, I think Tony on YouTube is 10 and Giovanni's 13 so, and for parents out there in general, one conversation I had recently with a parent is, uh, and his son is 14, but he's, his son's probably more like 12 
developmentally. And on my website, I have an article about developmental age versus biological age. I also have a podcast on my other podcast, Dear Baseball Gods, about developmental versus biological age. And so for a lot of players, the ones who need velocity the most are often the ones who are lagging behind growth-wise. So if you have a 14-year-old who looks like he's 13 or 12, he's going to be the one like, hey, how do, I, how do I increase my velocity? Because they want to catch up to the pack, right? Um, and of course, unfortunately, development is not linear. Like it's, it is for some kids. Some kids, when they're 10, they look like a 10-year-old. When they're 11, they look like an 11-year-old. When they're 12, they look like a 12-year-old. And they just sort of like slowly grow up, you know, in, right. in, in a linear fashion. And for other kids, and this is what I told this father recently, I said, your kid looks like he's probably more like 12 developmentally, even though he's 14. And then in a six month period, he's going to be go. he's going to go from being 12 to 15 all in a six month period. Like he's, he's going to hit a growth spurt. Like, and I wasn't telling him anything. He didn't probably already assume, but I've seen this and Bobby, you've seen this is that you go from, I've had a lot of kids that go from 12 to 15 in a six month span, essentially. Yep. Or 14 to 17 in a six month span. And it's crazy. They add six months. They add six inches you know they grow six inches they put on 25 pounds and they go from being like a boy to like closer to a man and you know suddenly they're they were five three and 120 pounds and now suddenly they're five eight and 145 pounds and that's like a pretty typical freshman size right like five right. eight five nine five ten 140 pounds and they catch up really fast and so but unfortunately for the kids that are younger that have that they're like in that developmental plateau where they're just stuck they're not growing they're not hitting puberty yet it's really hard to squeeze extra miles per hour out of them like you can't you can't force nature and so really what you do is you try to well let's develop good mechanics and you want to just try to like have a lot of fun with them like they just want to really love the game and learn to work hard all the while using an instructor you're like man i know you're doing the right things and i think i'm doing the right things with you i know you're not really gaining any velocity or you're not really hitting the ball very hard much harder you're not really running faster but if you just keep doing this stuff, when your growth spurt hits, then it'll just suddenly like rocket pack. Right. And that's a really hard thing for parents to, to watch. It's hard, it's hard for us to watch too, because I mean, you and I have both probably had kids in our facility where for 12 months, they're still just like making negligible pro- progress, right? They gain a couple of miles per hour or they get a little right. bit bigger, a little bit stronger, but it's, it's small because they're just, their body just isn't ready yet. And then as soon as they get that big dose of hormones, when puberty hits, they just like completely change. And that's when the strength training really matters because it's like, it's like you're on steroids and lifting versus on steroids and just walking around, you know, being on your couch. So, right. Um, but anyway, for, for those of you who want to increase your velocity, I mean, the formula is relatively simple. It's consistent strength training nine months out of the year. And if you're 10, probably not as much, maybe like twice, if twice a week, if you're interested in it, but if you're not, that's okay. Um, consistent throwing. So if you don't throw four or five, six days a week, and that's not to say you're throwing hard, just like playing catch a lot and long tossing once or twice a week, throwing bullpens, whatever, depending on the time of year, but throwing a lot is a big way to, and again, that's like when I was a kid, when Bobby was a kid, you're just out playing a lot of baseball in your backyard. So you're throwing wiffle balls one day, you're throwing tennis balls another day, you're long tossing with your buddies one day, they're hitting you ground balls another day, you're throwing them, acro- you know, throwing them across the diamond. Just throwing a lot is good for your arm, obviously. Throwing too much where it gets really you know, injurious is when you're pitching all the time. And that's the other thing. It's like if you're playing backyard baseball all the time and throwing a ton every day of the week, that's okay. It's not okay when you're 
starting and you're pitching and you're throwing 80 pitches in a game on Monday and then doing it again on Thursday all year round as a 12-year-old. Right. Right. So throwing is good. Constant competitive pitching is not as much. Um, and obviously then if you're still – if you're ready for it, arm care is important. So obviously your shoulder, your rotator cuff, which is part of your shoulder, those are like the tires of your car. Like if you want to get your arm stronger and feel better – doing direct rotator cuff strengthening is important, but arm care is a really tedious, awful, boring thing that when I was, when I retired, you know, Bobby, what, what was one thing you were so glad to not have to do anymore when you're, when you hung up your cleats? Oh, the, the winter, the workouts, just the overall workouts, a like lot of training it, yeah. to training to perform, working out to perform is a lot different than just working out to be in shape or, you know, yeah. physical human shape. That's, hundred percent. And I yeah. actually do not. And the number one thing is sprinting. I do not miss sprinting, you know, space stealing type sprinting and, you know, ladder sprint. No, no, thank you. Yeah. I have not sprinted since. Except away from the police probably. But <laughs> um, for pitchers, arm care is a, ne- is a necessary evil. It's super boring. It's tedious. It's like doing your taxes every day or for, you kids who are still in school it's like imagine the most boring homework that you have for a class that you hate that's what arm care was to me and i did it religiously you know four or five days a week for 12 13 years and it's and it sucks it becomes part of your life it becomes a habit but my point is that's a good thing to help increase your velocity if you're strengthening your rotator cuff doing all these slow dumbbell raises and external rotations and stuff with your bands and just doing five minutes of a day, five minutes of it a day is better than nothing for sure. But for most of us that end up throwing really hard, it's more like a 20 minute, sometimes 30 minute per day routine, again, like four or five days a week. And so it's like literally having chemistry homework every day. That's just, it's just boring. So if you're 13, I don't always recommend being gung ho about it because it's just like a, it makes baseball feel like work. And so for, in my academy, we would always just include a good amount of arm care into every workout. So kids come in for their strength training, they have some arm care built in and they have some arm care to, to do at the end. So they don't have to go home and do it where it's like this pill that they have to swallow. Yeah. So, but it, that's a viable thing that makes you throw harder for sure, because you're directly strengthening the, the muscles that accelerate and decelerate your arm and keep it healthy. So that's obviously a big one. And then just working on your mechanics. So pitching coach, I have tons of drills on my YouTube channel. Um, just long tossing and throwing, but it's just consistency with all of it. So if you're consistently doing strength and conditioning, if you're consistently throwing a lot, if you're consistently trying to improve your mechanics, whether it's on your own, looking through videos and trying new drills and whatever, or the coach, and then arm care is another um, a big one if you want to do it. But I'd say the last priorities for kids are do start arm care later when you're in high school, when you're a little more ready for baseball to feel like a job which unfortunately it has to at some point. Um, and I would stick to just like strength training when you're younger, play a lot of baseball, work on your mechanics, do drills in your house, practice them. And that's the biggest thing. Cause you can't rush how fast you grow. Cause a lot of, I mean, the, the thing for, especially if you kids listening, a lot of the difference between players, how hard they throw at different levels is their developmental age. So think of the hardest throwing kids, you know, typically they're bigger than the other kids or they're right. just like, or they're just like more, like they look more muscular, like they have more muscle tone. Like this is like muscle tone. Some kids when they're younger, they're just like 
they look more soft. And some kids like have a lot of like, you can see that they're kind of muscular. That's like muscle tone. That just means like their body's kind of like more mature, even though they might not be way taller than everybody else. They might not be way bigger, but they're still like almost like a, a mini, a mini grown up kind of. Right. It's, but it's, it, it, well, you got the, so the kids that are asking those questions on, on YouTube, obviously they have some kind of passion for the game, right? Yeah. For 10, sure. Cause you're listening and yeah. That's, so that's the, so what sign. you just so what you just described isn't going to feel like a job, you know, quote unquote job to them. It's going to like they want to do that. That's the th- those mm-hmm. are the things they want to do, and that's that's half the battle is the want to, right? You get kids that get yeah. dropped off at practice because they have to be at practice because they're on the team, and you got kids that are dragging their parents out the door, like, hey, we need to, we've got practice today. Uh, it's I just listened to the podcast, uh, Joe Rogan's podcast. He just had Mike Tyson on recently. And Mike Tyson, I don't realize how old Mike Tyson is. He's like 54 now, but he's fighting again. He's got a fight coming up with Ro- in November with Roy Jones Jr. And Mike Tyson, if you're younger, you probably don't remember or even know who Mike Tyson is, but arguably one of the top heavyweights of all time, boxers. And he said something that was, was interesting. Joe Rogan asked him how often he spars. And sparring is, you know, you're fighting somebody mm-hmm. else in a practice setting. And he asked him how often he spars. And he's like, I spar every day. And Joe Rogan, who also has a fighting background, he's like, that's crazy. Why would you, you know, why would you get hit every day? And Mike Tyson is like, he's like, how do I know how I can get hit or how not to get hit if I don't do it every single day? He's like, I, I need to do it. You have to do it. He's like, it's even if you don't like it. And that's, that kind of stuck out as and part of what Mike Tyson, his overall point is that, a lot of this stuff is stuff you don't want to do to be good at what you want yeah. to do. He's like, and that's, you know, the passion to do that at 54 years old, the passion to just get into the boxing ring and have, and want to do that is, is a different type of level of passion. But as a young player in any sport, like the passion to want to do it is more than, than anything else. Like if you want to be good at something, like you'll, you'll get there, whether you're physically behind on your timeline Mm-hmm. Or you're, you know, you're smaller than everybody else. Like if the want to do it is going to outweigh, you know, whatever other, whatever other stuff you're doing at practice, like you just, you have to want to do it. Yeah. And so two things there, number one, uh, for kids and parents, doesn't matter. I don't have to keep talking. <laughs> I don't have to keep prefacing it with that, but, uh, the big thing is habits. So like for Mike Tyson, that became a habit at some point where he's like, I need to do this every day. And then he stopped having to think about it once it was a habit. Like he didn't have to think about whether he was going to spar that day or what he was going to do, like what kind of things. He's just like, I know I'm going to spar today. So he just like shows up and he's ready to do it. That's the other thing with pitching drills and with arm care. At some point, like you have to, you have to want to dedicate yourself to building that new habit, but then you have to just create the habit, which is, all right, I wake up or whatever. I have a consistent time. Like I always, I always do my arm care in the morning for 15 minutes. And then you don't have to think about it. And that's how you can grit it out for 13 years, even when it's kind of miserable, because there's just like a thing that you always do, like brushing your teeth. Like I personally, hate, honestly, I hate brushing my teeth. I also hate showering. I shower every day because I'm a normal, clean human, but I like kind of hate it. I like, I'm like, ah, I had a good shower. It's annoying. I mean, but you still, things, yeah, there's a lot of could, stuff that you just do. So if you could like cleaning the dishes like you have is something you have to do as an adult something you have to do otherwise you just have a pile of yes yeah, I, I glance around on my places it needs to be cleaned um but the second thing is self-discovery 
self-discovery is important. So the best players in my academy, there, there are multiple. I mean, we saw lots and lots of kids. There are lots of different personalities. But one thing that was common amongst all of the best players is when they would come and ask me something, especially a pitcher, he'd be like, hey, Dan, they would have already searched. So I, I remember this is one specific example of a kid who's at a Division One right now. Um, he came up and he was like, hey, Dan, uh, I was thinking of doing, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I, I was thinking of doing this new thing in my, in my routine. I was like, I was going to add this or add that. And he's like, what do you think about that? And I was like, Nick, you've already, it sounds like you've already made up your mind. He's like, yeah, but I want your, but I want your opinion. And my point is that he didn't come and ask me, Hey Dan, like, what should I do between starts? And cause I, again, I don't remember the exact topic he was asking me, but he had already done his own research. He had already been pondering this question, searched all over the internet, searched wherever, and then also brought it to someone that he trusts, which is me. Uh, that's consistent with people who are really good because they're just searching for the answers. Like for me, I was always doing the same thing, trying to find new pitching drills on the web. Back when I was in college, I was doing pitching drills in my, my dorm and in my house, my off-campus house all the time. And I was just like searching and there wasn't that much on the web. I had to buy like pitching books. Like there wasn't as much out there, but I was like always searching. And then I would also ask my pitching coach. It wasn't just like, Hey coach, what should I do at home? And you're just like, I'll wait. You know, it's like, all right, Hey coach, what else? It's more like, what else can I do? So, but then self-discovery is the other important thing. When you do stuff consistently, you just start to figure things out about it. So like when Mike Tyson's sparring every day, he's discovering things that he can and can't do. He's discovering new nuances of people, of his fighters or his opponents that he didn't realize before. There's a lot of self-discovery. It's like if, if you don't know what to do as a pitcher to get better, just like grab a bunch of videos from my YouTube channel or someone else's YouTube channel or wherever that seem that they seem like they might be good for you and just go do them. And then you'll start to be like, oh, when I do it a little bit different, it feels a little bit better. Or when I do this, that seems to make the ball go farther. And when you're long tossing a bunch, oh, when I do, when I try to like really reach out, I can like throw it a little bit farther. That's all self-discovery. And that's all stuff you start to figure out over time. And there's still a ton of that, even as a grown athlete, like you learn how to throw the ball a little bit harder. Sometimes you just like, you just know, and no one ever taught you that you just like figured it out because you're doing it so often that you just start to like get a feel for what your body does. So self-discovery right. is a really important thing. And the more you're doing stuff consistently, the more you can get that. So, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's, it's definitely like try it's trial and error, right? It's learn what works, figure out what works for you and, and run with it. And then if you've got the passion for it, you're going to, like you'll have success to wherever your talent will take you. Like you're not going to, you're not going to be a big leaguer if you're, you know, if you're five, if you're five, one and hundred pounds and you never work out and never get in the weight room just because yeah. you like baseball. But well, that's also, a, you know, part of the, that's part of the, that's part of the overarching, you know, toolbox, like the passion to want to be good at whatever you're, whatever you're doing. Yeah, for sure. And the other, the other thing that's, uh, important about practices is is allowing kids to have some of that self-discovery because like in the lessons format kids are always there for your answer right like okay what did i do wrong what do i do what do i do what do i do or lots of times i'm like what do you think right what do you what do you think you did wrong it's not that hard to figure out sometimes right um and helping kids build that self-confidence to that like and understand that self-discovery is part of it so it's like teach them so the thing like just hey go do it i'm not gonna watch you just go go do it 
and the kids that are really focused that really care they'll be considering all right and there's no adults watching me there's no one here's going to coach me so but he told me what i should be doing so let's see if i can make it happen so having some of that unstructured stuff at practice is important and in backyard baseball it's all it's all unstructured right like right and there's so much more that instinct stuff i i can just remember you know playing with my buddies and it was usually just like one friend sometimes a second but you know i remember like i'm trying to steal a base and i'm just watching and i know how far away the ball can get from my buddy before i can where i can take off so i'm just like right. staring at the ground seeing trying to see if the ball will leave my you know my buddy's hand so it's gonna hit the dirt like i'm watching his release point is this ball gonna hit the dirt and when i think it is like okay i'm almost right and then i see where how far it goes and i'm like looking i'm like i know if it goes 24 inches away from my catcher i'm taking off but if it's only 18 inches i'm not and that's where you get that baseball in- instinct stuff where it's like they just know right away and then they're gone like they're looking for it looking for it looking for it they get this they get the sign they were looking for and they take off and that's where you that's also self-discovery because in backyard baseball there's no real consequences for getting thrown out trying to steal on your friend except no, maybe right. he, he wins he wins that game and you're pissed about it and so you learn to take that chance. And then over time, you like, you're like, okay, I know how far a ball has to skirt away from the catcher for me to steal second base. And it's just a thing. And you're like, oh, man, that kid's got great, great reads, great baseball instincts. How do, you, how do you build that? Well, he built it because he was like trying to steal second base for, you know, with a ghost oh, runner. Yeah, yeah over, hundreds over, of over. Times. Yeah. So the self-discovery aspect is, is interesting. So like as a coach, if you have your team and you have the last hour to – play you could always break them up and if you had the space for it, break them up into five on fives or something or just like separate them into little chunks like we played a game in the dominican it was um i think it was three bases so it was home like a first a second so it was a triangle and it was just like any other backyard game like i don't specifically remember the rules but we played on the beach it was super fun yeah and it just was like a couple rules and but it was very much like how far can you get off between bases before you you're going to get out like you have to be really careful those games are the best where it's like pitcher's poison or whatever where you've got to know can i make it to the next base before he gets it to this point or he grabs it or whatever and those are really important it's just hard to do that in a game because in a game you're gonna be like oh i'll just stay here i'm, I'm safe but in those safe. games you're always you're always safe trying space. to get the next base like everything is like go 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 and unless you can't it's yes, 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 no. Whereas in games for kids, it's more like default. No, no, no. Don't get, don't embarrass yourself. You know, maybe yes. So right. there's always that mental difference. Don't make mistakes. Yeah. And you can make mistakes in backyard baseball all the time. So I think, I think for team practices, if you're a coach out there, this just giving your kids opportunities to have that self-discovery time. Cause they, I mean, well, you'll probably have plenty of that anyway, because it's hard to consistently coach a group of 12, 15 kids anyway. Um, but just building it in there is, I think, important sometimes. And then also just giving them a chance to have little competitive games. So scour the internet for games kids can play. I mean, to teach base running, it's probably better playing games than actually playing a baseball game on the big field. Oh, yeah. Just like run down and stuff like that. Run down super fun. Super, super overrated, too. <laughs> you know? Well, get a ball we, they, can, they can peg each other with. Yeah, I pegging wiffle ball pegs was the best part. Best part. The best throwing part. it, throwing it at your buddies, throwing a wiffle ball at your buddies. Even Which to this why day, you did not want to get caught off a base. It, to this day, it's still fun as an adult. 
Yeah, you love chaos. So. I do. All right. Well, that was a that was an hour of just pure rant, which uh, was awesome for me. Moderate ramp. Well, I'm glad you got out of your system. I'm glad I made it back on time because I was trapped at my parents' house and took the train home this morning quite early. So I made it. But uh, thank you for being here. We appreciate you. Um, we will be back on Tuesday, the normal time. Also, we're considering maybe going to one show a week, maybe doing some different things. So if you leave us a comment, either on youtube or twitter and let us know how you feel about a once a week really great show versus two maybe good shows we'd appreciate your feedback but our goal is to produce the our goal is to produce the best possible show that we can given our time constraints and the fact there's kind of limited baseball news too and we're gonna have some more guests coming back up we have a bunch in the works i know i say that every week but uh well we've got one coming tuesday uh Strength coach Andrew Sachs, good friend of mine. On. Yep, and be good. Oh, is he a good friend of yours? I just saw you two. How did you not know? How did you not know that? I that just, was why it was weird. So, uh, final thought here. Uh, this this week, and I've been running around like a chicken, also with my head cut off. But uh, there's like a little Twitter spat, which is actually interesting conversation for another day. But. Andrew is, uh, so Andrew's one of my best friends. We've known each other since we were little kids. Bobby didn't know this, but I he and I were that. both in a Twitter, in a Twitter thread the other day, attacking another pitching coach. <laughs> and Ben Bobby, I guess, pitched in the show. And I was like, wait, but I should be the one to invite him on the show, which I had in the past, but he had been busy. But uh, there's some really bad research on the web. There's so much bad pitching research. There's bad everything it's, on the web. It's terrible. And we were both commenting on it. And it was just such bad research. And here's, and here's why it was bad. I'm going to go in this for five seconds. This guy was talking about how the drag line is important. And so your drag line as a pitcher is like, how long does your foot drag on the ground until you, know, you release the ball? And does your back foot stay on the ground for a long time through ball, you know, through ball release? Or, or does it lift off the ground before ball release? It's a, it's a very debatable topic. Because a lot of the best, I mean, there's lots of 100-mile-per-hour major leaguers who throw with their back foot slightly off the ground as pitchers. So, obviously, you can still have inefficiencies in your delivery and still throw 100 miles per hour. So, you can still throw 100 miles per hour and not have a perfect mechanics, right? However, to say that this is like a really crucial thing when there's so many dudes throwing 90 to 100 who have their foot off the ground, let me, let's be serious. Like, this can't be that big of an issue. Uh, but anyway, so th they, they released this like overview of a study they did and it's, and it, and it compared appropriate drag line to other drag lines. And I'm like, right off the bat, how does no one see how, like, how does your organization not see that calling this an appropriate drag line is just very biased language. Like it's, it's ridiculous. You're like, as a researcher, you should be looking for, and of course these were not researchers, which is why this was junk. Um, whether or not when you're looking for an effect you're supposed to do it from a neutral standpoint like we're just trying to figure out like all right we're doing a study on apples versus oranges we're trying to figure out are apples more healthy or are oranges more healthy right you're not trying to pre presuppose what what the conclusion is right and so the goal is to go in with an open mind everything's neutral and so when researchers like define study conditions and i studied psychology in college that was one of my i had two majors that was one of them so i know enough to be informed about you know research design certainly not a researcher uh obviously you try to go in there neutral 
right? And so saying like, say you're comparing the health of apples to chocolate, which we might already assume that apples are more healthy, right? You wouldn't write, so in group A, uh, people were fed, fed the healthy food and group B, they were fed the unhealthy food. You know, apples being the healthy food and like you would never use that language because it's presupposing that chocolate's unhealthy and apples are healthy, right? And we're using the study to determine that, right? You with me so far? I'm with you. So in this, in this thing they were talking about drag lines, they're like, here's, an appro- here's the appro- those with an appropriate drag line had this injury rate compared to people without an appropriate drag line. And the fact that you're using the term appropriate drag line, what do you think, what, what do you think when you hear the word appropriate? You think that it's good and proper and right, right? Correct, yeah. They're already presupposing that a drag line is better. They're already trying to pers- tell you and persuade you that their opinion, which this is just confirmation bias all over, is that drag lines are better. Like that their drag line, that their opinion of the drag line is the right one. It's like, this is garbage. And, and but the thing is, I tend to agree that if you could choose to make a pitcher in a, in a, in a, in a factory, he would want his back leg down at release, like his back leg long, like on the ground still at release. If I could build a pitcher in a factory, that's how I would have him throw. However, I still wouldn't do research to like in that biased manner to confirm my own suspicions. Like if I really want to learn about it and get to the bottom of it, I should do it in a neutral sense and try to determine, is this actually better? I have this opinion that is based on something, but it's an opinion based on drag lines and back legs, but I want to decide if it's actually correct. So let's do this the right way rather than... This is going to be fun on Tuesday. Anyway, so we will talk about research, I'm sure, a little bit with Andrew. But anyway, ranting over, I got my little rant in. So we're all, I think we're done. Thanks for watching. We will uh, see you here on Tuesday. Bobby, send them out. See everybody Tuesday. Uh, Thanks for listening.